Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today on the pod, I'm speaking with Dr. Ashwin Vasan, a medical doctor and epidemiologist who serves in many roles, most prominently as president and CEO of Fountain House, an organization dedicated to the recovery of people with mental illness by providing opportunities for their members to live, work, and learn. He is also an assistant professor for population health and medicine at Columbia University and an attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. I first discovered Dr. Vossen on Twitter, where his bio says, health is political. It's about time we said so. So he's kind of the perfect guest for this podcast. And he was also an enlightening person with whom to speak about all the various impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and how we should respond from how to communicate with Americans about a COVID-19 vaccine to what steps President-elect Biden should plan to take should he win the election in November. Let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Ashwin Bassan. Dr. Vasan, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, followed your work with Healthier Colorado and, uh, you know, really, really glad to meet you and glad to, glad to be talking with you. Thank you. I just want to begin with all these different roles you uh, have and have had. Um, you know, I would encourage anybody to go check out your LinkedIn because I think it's one of the most impressive LinkedIn's I've seen in, in some time. I think that you and I were probably around the same age. You just managed to do a lot more with your life. Uh, right now, you are president and CEO of Fountain House, and we'll talk about that more in a second, assistant professor of population health and medicine at Columbia, and an attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Let's start with um, Fountain House. Tell me about your work there. Yeah, I, I've been at Fountain House for going on a year, and Fountain House is a community-based mental health uh, nonprofit that focuses on um, fulfilling basic social needs, social determinants of health, as well as health services for people living with chronic persistent mental illness. And they do so um, in many conventional ways, which is just providing those services, but we do so through a therapeutic community called a clubhouse, which is over 72 years, uh, which we started in New York, has proven to be a, a real anchor institution for people that are really lacking anchors and lacking trust agents in communities. So we think of ourselves as the front door towards a whole bunch of other doors because we're able to engage and build trust with a, a particularly hard to engage population that, that as you know, you know, falls through the cracks of a whole bunch of systems, whether it's you know, cycling through our acute care, healthcare systems, um, you know, experiencing chronic homelessness at higher rates than than other populations, or sadly, in this country, um, you know, being criminalized and incarcerated at rates that are disproportionate to the general population. So over those 72 years, um, these clubhouses that are, are our affiliates are actually have been built in 37 states and in over 30 countries. So there's more than 300 of these clubhouse projects around the country and, and around the world. And I've been brought in about a year ago to bring some coherence and structure to that network and federate it akin to something like a Planned Parenthood and to really use that 
direct services platform as a as a platform to engage in um, public health advocacy, political advocacy, to advance an agenda um, for one of the most marginalized and overlooked populations in our society. And and you know, frankly, I think now more than ever, this issue is going to is is going to take on importance um, in the wake of COVID and the rising tide of of mental illness and mental health concerns over the next years, frankly. So, so we have a lot to do, but um, it's an exciting time at Fountain House. And um, I just hope over the next months and years that we'll be able to actually coalesce that um, energy and that power to really make some, make some change. Well, what are you seeing right now uh, in the population that you serve uh, as we face COVID? Well, you know, I think that Ordinarily, we would see, we would think and be afraid of um, people experiencing mental health crises at higher rates. And what's been interesting about the populations that are connected to these kind of anchor hubs is that we haven't seen that. Now, some of that was like background noise suppression of everybody staying away from healthcare and staying off the streets for the first few months of the pandemic. But even now, as we're as we're opening up and and different states are obviously in different stages of doing that, we're not seeing this massive spike in mental health crises amongst um, the seriously mentally ill who are connected into community-based social programming like ours. And that's a really good thing, which means they feel like they've got a place to turn to. And also, in turn, that we can really um, early identify people who are at risk of decompensation and kind of and and provide them with higher intensity services. So so that's um, been good. But like with everyone, I think quarantine fatigue is real. And we're starting to see people kind of fraying at the edges. You know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, sl- small upticks in um, behavioral instability, mental health crises, or other social vulnerabilities, whether it's people, you know, uh, experiencing the threat of eviction, um, whether it's people, um, you know, worried about unemployment running out. You know, we have a lot of people who are, we have a working community and we have a lot of people who are back to work after, um, uh, while engaged in their recovery. Um, and so a lot of people lost their jobs as a result. And so so we're, we're worried over the next weeks and months that um, we're gonna start to see more mental health crises I think what is also true is that when we had to close our physical locations, we pivoted very quickly into digital tools and into virtual solutions for, for people that often haven't had a lot of options to engage online in a, in a sort of community or therapeutic way. And so we're still learning about that, but I think that that's been a good bridge to keep people connected to our work. Um, I think across the board, we're going to see a massive increase in mental health conditions. So that means people who are undiagnosed getting diagnosed, people who are mildly diagnosed becoming moderate and severe, and people with known severe mental illness decompensating and experiencing higher rates of crises. And I don't think, I think there's a real lag in that. I don't think that that's something that's going to happen now necessarily. But as we start to get into the fall and into winter, when you can be, you know, when options to be out in the streets are less, when um, we're still, if we got, you know, I hope we're not still struggling with the same public health response that we're struggling with now. Um, but if we are, 
I think we're going to start to see an even an even greater burden of mental health conditions over the next um, months. And those are both directly due to the the pandemic itself and all of the restrictions, but also, frankly, due to the really the intersectional impacts on social determinants of health, whether it's income, housing, uh, safety, transportation issues, uh, food security. I mean, we're starting to see, you know, I think across the country, we're seeing food banks and um, uh, nutritional support services being accessed at, at um, sort of unprecedented rates in recent years uh, compared to recent years. So um, I'm concerned about the next few months and certainly the next year or two uh, and its impact on mental health. But I think we're in for a, a significant increase, which is why you know we're committed at Fountain House and just generally I'm committed to really making mental health squarely integrated into the public health conversation and really ensuring that public health is squarely in, uh, aligned and, and a part of our political conversation. These next few months, we'll also see um, kids going back to school in some form, whether it be online or in person. Um, and even though children aren't a population that you serve exclusively or, or specifically, what are your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic on children? And what do you have to say um, about this uh, debate that's playing out about the um, impact of, uh, you know, the negative impact potentially of uh, not having kids in school and missing out on that socialization and, and uh, development versus uh, the negative impact and risk associated with being, you know, around other humans in a, in a closed space. Uh, and the risks that poses uh, to kids in terms of contracting the virus. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a terrible Sophie's choice. You know, it's um, I'm a father of two school age kids, three kids, but two school age kids, and I want them to go to school more than anything. But much as the false debate has been around sort of the economy opening up or public health or schools opening up or public health, public health is the only way to to do those things. Investment in core shoe leather, public health, testing, contact tracing, quarantine, and economic and other social supports to quarantine are the backbone of any basic public health response. And we're nowhere in the country are we really doing enough. I mean, New York, I live in New York City. We've managed to suppress the um, community spread of the virus over the last couple of months. But we're just, we're hanging on, you know, we're starting to see lags in testing uh, up to 10 days between a test and its result. That becomes useless at that stage. And so um, if that persists, we're in, in, a, in a real bad way when it comes to opening schools. I, I desperately want my schools to, uh, my kids' schools to open up um, for their emotional well-being, their intellectual well-being. Um, you know, I'm not of the mind that you can just pull kids out of school. It, this is such an important um, neurocognitive and developmental time in their lives. They need to be in school. It's the best place they learn. It's the best place they learn um, emotional skills, self-regulation skills. And, and as a parent, I'm seeing those things start to ebb and break down and, from being cooped up at home. And, and there's not a whole lot I can do about it. You know, and as a parent, you're a parent, I feel a little bit powerless in that equation, which makes it all the more frustrating that 
we don't have the necessary kind of leadership to actually galvanize the thing that would allow us to be having a conversation about opening up, which is public health and investing in the basics of public health. You know, um, in field epidemiology, which is the closest thing to sort of epidemic response, um, they kind of teach you that epidemic response is the closest thing to like a command and control exercise um, that you can have in health, which is akin to a military exercise, which means that the tone and the guidance is set at the top. And it rolls downhill because it's a rapidly evolving situation. There's rapidly changing information and you need clarity of purpose, clarity of action and clarity of information up and down the chain. And as we've seen, we've seen the highest level abdicate that role, push it to states and local authorities. And it's become and politicize it so that it's it's really in America, it's the Wild West in terms of our public health response. And that's threatening our schools. It's threatening our economy. Um, and of course, it's putting lives at risk. And so when I think about my kids and that risk, their their developmental risk versus the physical risk, it's not a choice I want to have to make, but it's a choice we're all having to make um, in this time. And, and, and that's really unfortunate. It sounds like you uh, believe that we're falling short now uh, on the response. I would, of course, uh, agree. I think you'd probably also agree that we were underfunding public health uh, to begin with before the this crisis is set upon us. Um, it seems like that is finally getting some attention as we're experiencing this crisis and our anemic response to it. And in a recent op-ed in USA Today, uh, Tom Daschle and Tom Ridge highlighted this underfunding and proposed a public health defense operations component within the federal budget. What do you think about that idea? So, yes. So number one, um, you know, my background is actually in public health and, and squarely in public health. I used to work at the city, New York City Public Health, Depart health Department, um, and I'm trained in that. And so I come to even to mental health from a squarely public health background. And I've always been, and though I'm a physician, I've always felt that we place far too much emphasis on care and back end solutions and treatment, as opposed to the things that really build health and make people and communities healthy. Um, and if you start to address the things that really make people and communities healthy, by definition, you're sitting within core public policy, education, you know, education, employment, income, um, you know, all the whole gamut of social determinants of health, right? Housing and, and air quality and environment and, and, and the like, right? And those are all issues that get more traction on their own than public health gets on its own. And yet it is the interdisciplinary manifestation of all those things, right? Health is the thing that you don't realize is important until it's gone. But health is the manifestation of how you live your own risks and genetics and, 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 you know, history, but also what's around you and mainly what's around you, what you have access to, what your communities um, invested in, what your skin color is, what your uh, ethnicity is, your language skills are. I mean, all of the, your educational background, all of this stuff is, are the building blocks of health. And, um, it's hard to talk about those things as health issues 
in this current environment. And actually, frankly, it's always been hard to talk about those things as health issues. Um, so I'm glad that we're finally, you know, talking about public health in a in an important way. Um, I'm glad that I no longer have to explain what an epidemiologist is for the first time in my life. Um, so that's interesting. I agree with you that public health has been chronically underfunded, though I think that previous estimates of that underfunding have been vastly underestimated. I think they're, you know, the the prevailing figure that comes out, Trust for America's Health, $4.5 billion annually underinvested in state and local health authorities. I think that's way, way low. I mean, the New York City Health Department budget is $1.2 billion. So to say that state and local territories across the country may have a $4.5 billion deficit, I'm not sure I agree with that, that forecast. Um, I think it's actually much more. And I think part of the way that you build up that, that, that case for investing more is by squarely situating it in core public policy issues and realize that like the decisions you take on your schools and your environmental protection and all these other things are going to going to select who lives, who dies, and how well they do both in this country. I'm glad that, we, you know, to the extent that there's such a thing as bipartisanism anymore, I'm glad that this bipartisan <laughs> group of ex-politicians ex, uh, ex, uh, and officials came together, Tom Ridge and Tom Daschle came together to write this. There have been other, other um, sort of op-eds like this. The, the thing I worry about the most, though, is that public health, again, gets kind of sat within this national security bucket. Then it tends to only focus on epidemic response and preparedness, which is only one core piece of public health. Right. An important one. I mean, as we're seeing, an important one, but but not the only one. And actually doesn't get to most of the upstream drivers of, for example, why black Americans are three times as likely to get and die from COVID uh, as to get COVID and to die from it than white Americans. So I would like us to have both conversations. If we, if we can hold two ideas in our head, which I'm not sure we can do in this country anymore. Um, yes, let's invest in um, health security, epidemic preparedness. And I think that the, um, this defense operations component is a useful, let's say, administrative rubric to consider to get public health funded now. But longer term, I think health has to be a um, sort of executive office priority out of the federal government, the office of the president, the domestic policy council. And then I think we need to have real liaison officers around health, public health, health equity, whatever you want to, whichever angle you want to take on it, all those angles in each of the specialized agencies to actually make this manifest at the federal level. And then, you know, states and local authorities can, can um, take heed of that and we'll be able to mobilize the dollars to actually push into states and local municipalities for public health. Because right now, very hard for states and local authorities to generate that revenue on its own, especially now in this environment uh, where tax revenues are gonna start to fall. Yeah, when you think about the history of public health, you know, began mainly with an infectious disease and then more recently evolved into the management of chronic disease and now uh, tackling social determinants of health. And now we have this pandemic, which kind of brings uh, public health back to its roots and is um, attracting some 
you know, I think somewhat helpful uh, attention in terms of investment. Do, but do you think that, um, you know, the focus that results from uh, uh, this pandemic on infectious disease will set back at all efforts on focusing on chronic disease and um, social determinants of health? And I mean, the latter of which would be, you know, sad and ironic given that um, we are going through, um, we're experiencing a movement in this country right now that, um, you know, aims at the heart of um, social determinants of health in, in race. How do we walk and chew gum at the same time on this? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And I, I'm not too worried, I'm not too worried that it'll necessarily set it back, but I just think it'll be continued because I don't think it has a good starting place to begin with. Um, but I do, I don't think, I think we run the risk of ignoring it. I mean, and all you had to look at was how slow we were to start releasing race disaggregated data around, um, COVID, right? How slow local authorities were, how slow CDC was, because frankly, it was as if our public health leaders were, were kind of confronting racial health disparities for the first time. You know, that's at least if I, if I knew nothing about public health and I was observing this, I'd be like, wow, it's like, this is an epiphany to these people. Even though there's been scholarly work, there's been tons of data, there's been, you know, a long history of work around uh, racial health inequity and disparities. Um, and so I'm glad it, like I said, I think I'm glad it's getting the attention it is. I hope that we can have a more fulsome conversation particularly linking public health to our recovery. Because we have to reconstruct our economy, we have to reconstruct our society in many ways over the next years. And if public health isn't central, centered in that conversation, and if it's only seen as a, as a uh, bulwark against another epidemic, then yes, I do think we, we run the risk of not centering people's health and really perpetuating health disparities, perpetuating poor health um, in certain communities in this country. Um, but, you know, to your point about history, I mean, the, 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 the sort of fathers of a lot of modern public health, you know, people like Jon Snow, people like Rudolf Virchow, were people who recognized the disproportionate impact of these infections on the poor. So I think we have an opportunity to really keep driving home the point that COVID is not being experienced equally. That while the virus on a biological level doesn't discriminate, we discriminate and the outcomes therefore are discriminatory or unequal. And we have to rebuild in a way that strikes at the heart of that inequality. And by doing so, you will have to get your hands dirty into um, core public policy, core investments, core structures in our society that perpetuate these health inequalities. And, and, um, I think we have an opportunity to do that with some smart and elegant thinking at the federal level. My worry is that people are going to be so consumed with the economy and so consumed with, um, the crisis that that brings that we're not going to think about reconstruction in a way that is structural and that gets to basic questions of, you know, things about our schools and things about quality of housing stock and things about quality of jobs available. And, and, and even, you know, you can even make the case, and there's been scholarly work on this, that entrepreneurism and access to capital is a driver of health, right? 
So we have to we have to start talking as we think about rebuilding and reconstructing, as we think about frankly renegotiating the social contract we have in our society around something like a New Deal style of politics. We've got to center health because otherwise we'll just keep seeing these these disparities. You know, we'll keep seeing these inequalities, and then we'll kind of be asking, oh, why is that happening? Why is that happening? And we, I don't want to be in the position where we're asking that same question the next time a pandemic hits or just asking that question writ large about health and, and who lives and who dies in this country. Let's say it's Wednesday, November 4th. Your phone rings. Pick it up. It's President-elect Joe Biden. And he wants to know the three steps that we should take to protect public health in this country. What do you say? Well, from your mouth to God's ears, I hope, I hope that that's the case. Um, but so I think step one, you got to respond to the pandemic. You've got to make a massive investment into public health. And, and there's a few core things you can do around that. You have to create a executive order around masks. You've got to establish benchmarks at the county level, at the very least at the county level, around community spread, community transmission. So that's testing rates, test, positive, test positivity rates, um, and so forth. And those those counties, those municip- those counties and municipalities that that don't meet those benchmarks, get enforced lockdown. Um, you need to massively scale up our testing apparatus, and that includes evoking things like the Defense Production Act. The same thing is true for our PPE uh, stocks, especially for frontline workers, but generally, um, you know. We need to make masking the easy choice. So we need to have masks like widely available. Um, and then you need, we need to have a serious conversation about economic relief. And then I think that gets into the, the, um, the other recommendations. Number two is economic relief. There's a set of short-term things that um, you know, Biden needs to be doing, which is extending unemployment insurance, extending eviction moratoriums, um, extending protections for family leave and for childcare for working parents, um, extending protections for elder care and for aging populations, um, extending things in the healthcare sector around, um, you know, coverage and inclusivity of things like telehealth, which we've seen a massive massive increase in. So those are all things we can do that will all have an economic impact while we're talking, confronting the very core issues in our economy, right? So short-term economic relief, but also let's attack those core issues in our economy. And some of that, frankly, starts with regulation. We've got to have better corporate regulation, environmental regulation, so that we can capture back some of the tax revenue and and income base that the federal government needs, we're going to need all that we can to start to rebuild. And I think that requires a renegotiation and, and set of new regulations around 
basically corporate capture of our economy and our political system. I think lastly, my third recommendation is to, and it, and regulation falls into this as well, um, start to really tackle issues of information flow and um, uh, around around everything in our society. Nothing is going to get done. And, and I think we're gonna see this with the vaccine as well. Nothing is going to get done if half of society doesn't trust anything that's said by the other party or anything that's said by elected leaders in government. And so I am hopeful that we have a new president in November, but that, but Joe Biden has a ton of work to do to un, to rebuild the damage that, or to work back the damage that, that this administration has done. And frankly, other administrations have done prior. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do to rebuild back civic trust, trust in our civic institutions and public trust. And, and some of that goes with um, the way that we both regulate information flows on social media and otherwise, but also just the way that we communicate to the public. So he's got a huge responsibility tonally and from a, from a bully pulpit perspective in terms of being able to cut through the noise and speak to the entire country. That's going to be a huge challenge because if he takes that as a um, opportunity to try to do both sides-ism, like, oh, but you're, you might think this and I might think, that. Well, no, we're talking about science, we're talking about facts, we're talking about empiricism here. That's not gonna work because that's actually where our political debate is. It's this kind of weird both sides-ism and um, warfare. He's going to have to cut through that and say, like, these are the facts. This is what we're doing. No nonsense, no BS. And um, that's going to be a very hard thing for him to do. But he's got that's got to be what he spends a significant chunk of his time thinking about. The solutions to our reconstruction are not going to be only in the policy space. They're going to be squarely in the political space, in the representational space, in the um, you know, the building back of global alliances. I mean, this is now a fourth recommendation, but as a part of his bully pulpit work, you know, they say the presidency is um, 80% foreign policy, right? Well, one of the first things we need to do is go back to the WHO and rescind that, rescind that uh, idea that we're leaving the WHO, you know, despite its flaws, I'm a former WHO staff member, but, but um, it's got to be a part of our position in the world that we push multilateral institutions to be better. That'll affect our entire foreign policy. And we need allies to get through this. We cannot rebuild our economy and our society without a, um, a, a strong America that's, that's well situated in a global community. And right now we are isolated and laughed at and denigrated. And so my third pillar broadly is really the bully pulpit. Like how are you going to use that to good effect both at home and abroad. And, and so uh, those are my three things, the public health, economic recovery, and the bully pulpit. And so you hang up the phone with President-elect Biden, and um, I wish I could say he would just do those things. Um, maybe he would do some of them, but um, we're likely going to have to continue to build a political movement for, for public health, while at the same time uh, trying to depoliticize the scientific underpinnings of public health. So it's a, it's a difficult kind of two-step. 
Um, you know, one idea I saw from um, our friend Brian Castrucci over at the Beaumont Foundation is to um, have uh, public health officials report at the local and state level, perhaps to um, health boards uh, versus um, elected officials, and then perhaps finding a, an equivalent of that uh, in some respect for the CDC. Um, what, 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 how do we depoliticize science? And that's a big question, um, especially within the broader context of also, you know, I think in your Twitter bio, you say health is political. It is. It's like, how do we, you know, double down on the necessary political investment we need to make to create change for public health while also depoliticizing uh, science? Yeah, I mean, I think those are two, actually two different things. And so, and I think, frankly, if I can be a little bit critical of our own field for a moment, we've been, we've, on some cases, we've been, in, in some cases, we've been our own worst enemy on this issue in terms of people in public health, not recognizing how political our field actually is, putting our heads in the sand around the science and saying, well, I'm just a scientist and, you know, I'm not, I don't play in that field. And, um, not really understanding how to move the levers of power and influence and communication and advocacy. And, and that's been to our, old, our own detriment. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see there are organizations like yours trying to do that at the state level. We need much more of that. We need much, much more of that. We need more doctors and public health people running for office, leading institutions, and bringing their particular lens on how they see the world to these large-scale public policy problems. Now, the politicization of science is as old as time itself, and it's just become super magnified in this pandemic. But, but you know, the WHO identified vaccine hesitancy as one of the great global threats of the next cent of the next decade, right? And you know, some estimates say that there's only about fifty percent of people who would actually take the vaccine. Which, as you know, to build any sort of herd immunity through a vaccine, you need at least 70%, 70 to 80% um, immunity. And so if only half of people are taking it, it's basically like nobody's taking it. And so um, we've got a lot of work to do to rebuild the public's trust in science. And part of that is not by taking our local officials and depoliticizing them. So I'm not, I don't know if I agree with Brian's suggestion on the health boards and to try to firewall them from the political system. Rather, I would say, how do we put our health people more upfront in some of these scientific, in some of these conversations that require really clear scientific communication? And how do we arm them with the training and the skills and the tools for them to be better scientific communicators? For example, if we're looking in the mirror and, and I always try to look at what we could have done better, what I could have done better. I, you know, I personally, and I don't think the whole field of public health was as clear about masks as we should have been in the beginning of the pandemic. We should have looked at what we were seeing in China and what we have known from other um, respiratory pathogens that it was always going to be a good idea to err on the side of more masking and draw down if we had to, then err on the side of, well, we're not sure about masks. You know, um, you know, the challenge with a novel virus or a new epidemic is we've got shifting scientific information that's rapidly changing. And so the foundations of public trust are around um, clear communication, around 
that clear communication being signaled from the highest levels, right? I mean, back to that military command and control analogy. So your local official is not going to engender as much trust as if it's coming from the CDC or from the even the White House. But also that we we level with the American people that we're learning and information is shifting. Here's what we promise you. Transparency. We promise you as clear communication as we can. When we can't be clear, we'll explain why we can't be clear. And we'll be upfront with you about the risks, the benefits, and the harms, right? So that you can make sound decisions in your own life and that so populations can make sound decisions. And so I don't want to blame public health alone. And I'm certainly not saying that. We, we are not even close to predominantly to blame for the undermining of science in this pandemic. You know, that's coming from the top. That's coming from the White House and the undermining of science itself. And so it will very much help to have a leader in um, power that endorses science, but that also gets out of the way when um, science needs to lead. And that's, you know, we've seen that, we saw that with H1N1 under Obama at, at every level. And we've seen it in other, in other epidemics prior. Good presidential leadership and good state-level leadership is, is allowing um, officials allowing elected officials to endorse science or, or asking them to, and then getting out of the way when the science has to be communicated. But, but honestly, if there is a skills gap, uh, something that we all need capacity building in for our state, local, federal too, federal, state, and local health authorities, it's scientific communication and public health communication, because frankly, that's fallen down in this. Um, not only have they had to cut through a lot of noise that's been created by the by the executive branch but around that the communication has been pretty poor um and so we we just have a lot of work to do to rebuild that trust i don't think the answer is firewalling science from politics i think the answer is showing that politics and science work hand in hand and actually that the political system supports science and frankly we need more scientists and doctors being our political leaders so that we can make those decisions. Look at Germany, look at Angela Merkel, a, a chemist who makes sound decisions, communicates soundly, doesn't, doesn't bullshit when she communicates, if I can say bullshit on the podcast, you know, um, and you can see there's a sober, clear and evidence-based tone in the way she communicates. And she also is able to express some empathy. I know this is hard. I know these choices are tough for you to make. I have children, I have a family, these are tough decisions for me to make. Empathy is hugely important in an environment where there's a lot of unknowns. And we need our public health officials to find that balance between really clear science, really clear recommendations, and just human empathy, because that will bring people along as the information changes, as your recommendations change, and more broadly, as we try to build the public's trust in what our scientific communication is. Yeah, I feel like people in public health don't fully recognize their potential power. I mean, we're seeing um, um, a grand example right now in the form of Dr. Fauci and how you know much influence um, he has and um, how much trust people have in him. But there's much more evidence than that. I mean, um, when people are asked to rate their trust in federal agencies, the CDC is typically um, in the top three of those. Uh, here in Colorado, we ran an extensive poll um, in the spring after COVID um, uh, broke out. 
And it showed that local public health agencies, the state public health agency, received the, the highest marks. Um, even back in the 80s, um, uh, you know, C. Everett Koop, Sur Surgeon General, I remember he had outsized influence. Um, so I think that there's so much opportunity for um, scientists and people in public health to lead. Um, they just need to, you know, seize, you know, seize that opportunity. Um, hopefully, I, honestly, I think, you know, to the question of, you know, how do we build this movement, it's going to require them stepping up. It's going to require them stepping up. I totally agree. I mean, I think they're going to have to step up, but they're also going to need to be invited in. It's going to be both, right? And if your political leaders are at war with you and combating, combating science, you know, I can't imagine being a public health official in a place like Florida or Georgia or Arizona, where the governors are really abdicating their duty and totally buying into the politicization of the epidemic response. Texas, you know, what are you supposed to do there? What is, I have a ton of empathy for those officials. It's not their fault that they're not able to break through that noise because the noise is coming from the highest level. The noise is being generated by the people. You don't expect to generate noise on this issue. You expect them to be clear or get out of the way and let the, let the scientists lead. You know, these are the moments when good leaders, you know, this was a slam dunk for Donald Trump. This was a slam dunk. This is, there's a playbook for this. He just is just completely incapable as a human being, as a leader, as a, as, as anything to follow any sort of rules, order, operations. And he has very little trust in others and engenders a lot, very little trust in himself. Right. And so he could have handed this entire agenda over to the CDC and gotten out of the way. And it would have been landslide Trump victory if, if we had, if that's what he really wanted. Right. Because the, the play is pretty clear. The playbook is clear. We know what to do, even with all the different information about masking and testing and all those things. We knew we could have invested in testing, tracing, PPE, quarantine, economic relief. Boom. We would have been able to do those things had he centered public health from the beginning. He didn't. And now we're all paying the consequences of this. And it's it's rolling downhill to our schools and our children and and all parts of our lives. Yeah, I mean, he could have he could have. Um really benefited from this crisis. Um, I think that this could have been the political equivalent of a war. And had he led in the right way, he could have seen the same kind of rally around the leader effect that we typically see in this sort of, those sort of situations and coasted to reelect despite everything else that uh, you and I know um, he, he falls short on. It's, it's amazing that um, he's chose this path instead. I've got one last question for you before I let you go. Um, you mentioned the COVID-19 vaccine and how, you know, polls show that half of people are saying that, um, you know, they probably wouldn't get the vaccine if it were offered right now. You dig into that 50%, you've got like a 20% kind of hardcore anti-vax set. And then you got about 30% who are hesitant because they have concerns about, um, you know, the trials being rushed, et cetera. Um, you know, and I, I've in my own personal life, I've spoken to a lot of people who are reasonable people, not anti-vaxxers, who have worry and concern 
um, about the rush process and um, aren't sure they're gonna get the, the vaccine. How do we build confidence um, uh, among people to get this vaccine? And what do I say uh, to my friends um, who you know have concerns? Yeah, no, I, I I appreciate the question. I mean, I think number one, it's what is the role of a vaccine in our public health response, right? And so part of how we message around this has to be the vaccine's a part of a solution that also includes masking, testing, social masking, social distancing, testing, tracing, and the like. And the problem is calling it out individually separate and apart from those other core public health strategies accelerates the timeline where people feel like they've got to make a decision to keep themselves safe, which isn't actually the case, right? Um, even the way that we've talked about vaccine development, it's called Operation Warp Speed. That's what the government has, has labeled this. That's a bad messaging tactic in terms of building confidence amongst the skeptical public that this is going to be safe and effective. So number one, I think you've got to, at a basic level, starting now, build up more confidence that there's a public health safety net of solutions that we're investing in that will allow you to take a little bit of time in making the decision for you and your family over the wet, whether to get the vaccine. So you can't just hold out and hope the vaccine comes and then make a decision in January and expect that to not carry risks and benefits, right? So I would encourage anyone thinking about this to the person you're trying to talk to, don't lose the focus of the conversation from public health, right? From core epidemic response, number one. Number two, we need to level with the American people about the trade-offs here. There are trade-offs in terms of just the speed with which the vaccine is coming to market and our ability to test medium and long-term safety. And what that also means is that as we think about a rational vaccine distribution strategy, this can't be another example of where it's, you know, a free for all and where, you know, rich people are hoarding vaccines and people have differential access. We need to be thinking about a national vaccine distribution strategy that targets, you know, high-risk groups, elderly people, people who are already in institutional care settings where we can monitor them more closely and start to do what we call in, you know, in pharmaceutical terms and in, in diagnostic terms, post-marketing surveillance, right? When a drug comes to market, we usually don't fully, the FDA usually doesn't fully clear it until two years, depending on the drug, two years of post-marketing surveillance data, which basically tracks all the adverse events and possible side effects across the country. And we need the same thing for this vaccine. And so we need to level with, the, level with people that like, that's where we're at. We're introducing a brand new vaccine. We're introducing a vaccine that doesn't have any long-term testing. And so here are the here are the things we need to be cautious about, number one. Number two, this has to be a part of an overall strategy of building up vaccine confidence in general. So, you know, whether it's the, the reasonable mom somewhere who's worried about the additives or, or, or something like that, let's start now with the conversation about those things again, 
right? It's not about doubling down on our different camps. It's about saying, hey, everything we do in medicine, everything we do in public health is carry some risk and a lot of benefit in many cases. And we have to be able to level with people about those things. And we have to talk to people how, about how confidence is built in a particular treatment or, or preventive, right? You know, people take Lipitor or anti-cholesterol medications like, like they're nothing now. But that's after decades of confidence built up through post-marketing surveillance and otherwise and monitoring, right? So we need to talk about that with the American people. Number one. Number two, or number three, I should say, is we need to um, also acknowledge what kind of vaccine this is likely to be. This is not likely to be, based on everything we know, the kind of vaccine that gives you 5, 10, 15 years of immunity, right? It's not clear that we as a species can even generate that kind of long-term immunity to um, coronaviruses at all. So this is more likely to be the kind of seasonal flu vaccine kind of um, system where every year we tweak it, every year we improve it, every year we um, do more investigation and more surveillance, and every year it gets better. The flu vaccine wasn't as good when we started as it is now. And each year it varies. But that's because we're constantly surveilling and changing and, and testing. And so I think that's also something we have to level with people about. I think it also is incumbent upon us to talk about you know, which vaccine candidates are doing what, why. There are a number of candidates in the pipeline, but as you've probably heard, not all of them are, are against the main part of the virus that is actually producing what we call neutralizing antibodies, right? Um, and there was a great piece um, in the Times about this over the weekend. So we should be able to differentiate with the public what are those that are likely to be really good and likely to be less good? Even if they both they have good results in the short term, the ones that actually generate neutralizing antibodies are um, going to be better. And then we need to, you know, the part that I haven't addressed and I didn't address in my recommendations to Joe Biden or but but probably could have, is that we need to ensure that everyone has access to health care. And why do I say that? Because if, if you do take a vaccine and you get ill, if you do um, certainly get ill from coronavirus, if you are not confident that you can get access to low quali high quality care at low cost that's not going to bankrupt you, then why would you take a vaccine? Why would you have any confidence that, that you um, should take something that you have any doubts over its safety? and efficacy, right? Why would you do that? So this idea that we can get away with an, an environment of reconstruction and vaccine deployment without addressing this very core issue of what's covered, who's covered, how do we get people coverage um, is probably a fallacy. You know, I hope that in whatever relief bills come up, I know the HELP Act now, but, but further, that we're actually talking about subsidizing all coronavirus related vaccines, testing, and post, uh, and therapeutics. Um, but we're not, right? We're not at that level yet. So it's going to be tricky. There's been a huge undermining of public trust around vaccines. There's been huge debate. There's always been debate about vaccines, to be clear. There's ne it's not like we've 
um, degenerated to this point. We're just at a more extreme point. But when vaccines first came on the market, when they were first uh, uh, developed, there was still a lot of public mistrust around them as well. Um, so we have a lot to do to build confidence in what this vaccine is able to do, how we're able to distribute it equitably and um, sensibly, um, particularly to the highest risk, most vulnerable people first, and to level with Americans, level with the public about um, the reasons why we may or may not have safety concerns, why we may or may not expect a certain type of immune response for a certain amount of time. And that might not sound clear to clear now as I say it, in part because I don't know the answers to those questions, but anyone communicating around the vaccine going forward um, has to be building that confidence. You know, if, if Biden wins the election in, uh, in November, it's almost as if he needs a shadow bully pulpit and a shadow press secretary, a transitional press secretary to start putting out this messaging um, immediately, right? Um, because God knows what's going to come out of, of the current executive. Dr. Vasan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I was enlightened. I'm sure everybody else was too. So we certainly appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do it again. And um, thank you for doing what you're doing. Appreciate you. There you have it. I mentioned at the top that I first came across Dr. Vasan on Twitter. You can give him a follow at at A-S-H-V-A-S-N-Y-C. You can also give us a follow by subscribing to this podcast. And please consider rating us as well. It'll help us reach more people. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.